Hey guys, while we take a break this Memorial Day, I wanted to share a podcast hosted by one of the fiercest women in the military that I know, Margot from Military Murder. She dives into cases involving service members, and don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to understand. She has got you covered. Check out one of her earliest episodes here, and check out her podcast, Military Murder, wherever you listen to podcasts. Military Murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning. This episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you, thank you for subscribing and downloading another episode of Military Murder. I am so ecstatic that you have chosen to come back to listen again. I am your host, Margot, and just a little background for those who maybe click download for the first time today. This is a true crime podcast that cover cases with a military nexus. So this isn't a conspiracy podcast about war crimes or anything like that. This is about true crimes committed by military veterans, military members who snap, basically. You don't have to know anything about the military to enjoy listening. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, you're home. Now, I need to give a warning, right? So I'm like super excited about the podcast, but I am super sad about this episode. So This episode contains triggers for domestic violence and violence against children. So extreme listener caution is advised. And if for whatever reason you start listening and you're triggered, please stop listening and get help. Today, I am discussing a Marine veteran with a history of domestic violence. I mean, this guy seems to be invincible in the eye of the law. He humiliates, stalks, beats his victims, but he's still allowed unsupervised visits with his children. But what happens when a lawless man wants revenge and he takes it out on the least suspecting victims? Today, I am going to discuss the case against Marine veteran John Battaglia Jr. Now, let's dig in. Before I begin, I wanna just start with a list of my sources that I used to piece this story together. My number one source was a book by award-winning author Irene Pence called No Daddy Don't. I also used a People Magazine article published in February of 2018, and the Dallas Morning News did a lot of coverage about this case as well. So our story is about Marine veteran John Battaglia Jr. John Battaglia Jr. was a military brat, and he was born on August 2nd, 1955. A military brat is a term of endearment, and it's a term given to active duty military children who move often. And by high school, John had lived in Alabama, Texas, Washington, D.C., Germany, Oregon, and New Jersey. John's father, John Sr., he worked as a logistics soldier in the Army Medical Corps, and he eventually retired as a lieutenant colonel. Now, John's mom struggled with depression and she committed suicide when John was a young boy. 
and she left behind five kids. Sadly though, John Sr., he was more like a drill sergeant than a father, and his children really missed John's mom. After John Sr.'s retirement, John Jr., he was looking forward to living in one place for a long time. At this point, he's in high school, he's joining all these different organizations, he's doing really well, when all of a sudden, his father uproots the entire family for a job opportunity across the country. Now, this isn't uncommon. When people are in the military, they get used to the hustle and bustle of moving every few years. So after retirement, when they're stuck in one particular place for a long time, they just start looking for a change. And that's what John's father did, not realizing that it was going to affect John Jr. During college, John decided, John Jr., now I'm only going to talk about John Jr. for the rest of the episode. John stayed home and he decided he was going to live at home. The the situation at home, though, was pretty bad. As the oldest kid, he seemed to be the recipient of the brunt of John Sr.'s anger. And at one point, John and his brother get into a fight and John points a gun at his brother during this argument. During college, John gets himself into cocaine. He's even dealing to make ends meet. He decides, though, at this point, he needs to follow in his father's footsteps, and he gives the Marine Corps a try. He worked in logistics, and he only did one four-year tour before deciding that he wanted to become a certified public accountant. And that's exactly what he did in 1982. While he's in school, John pursues a side hustle of modeling because John is really a good-looking fella. So I want to talk about his first wife. So John's first wife, her name is Michelle Ward, and she's a smart-ass woman. She graduated in the top of her high school class. She graduated in the top of her college class, and she was valedictorian of her law school class. And in the midst of all of these accolades, Michelle had been married and divorced to a different guy, and she had one child in that marriage. So Michelle, she's like a modern woman before like being a modern woman became a thing, right? So she's pretty badass. After law school, she immediately begins working for a really large, prestigious law firm in Dallas, Texas. So in 1984, she's at a work party and she meets this, you know, pretty snazzy looking young man and his name is John. She's impressed with John Battaglia because he's tall, handsome, and he's really a charmer. She was apprehensive at first because, you know, she had a seven-year-old son and John, though, once he found out she had a seven-year-old son, he was excited and he's super excited to meet him. And so at this point, Michelle couldn't ask for a better man. A few months later, Michelle and John, they're really excited to meet Michelle's family and they're on the way to meet them for the first time. I can only imagine Michelle's excitement. You know, when you have a new significant other and you have to introduce them to your family and you're trying to figure out if it's going to be a good fit or not. And so this is what Michelle is probably going through. On her way to her family's house, though, Michelle experiences a glimpse of the real John. When after being cut off by a car with young kids, John decides that he needs his gun so he can show those boys a lesson. Michelle was petrified. Who was this man? And she immediately knew this wasn't the right man for her. But as soon as she was getting ready to break up with him, she found out she was pregnant. 
Michelle was used to being a single mom, so this aspect of it really wasn't a big deal. But she spoke to her mom about it in an old-fashioned manner. Her mom convinces her, hey, marriage is the best route. You're a single mom. I know you can handle it. One kid is fine, but two kids, that's really tough. And so she took her mom's advice. And you have to remember, it is the 80s and it's kind of, you know, old school mentality, you know. So on April 28th, 1984, Michelle reluctantly marries John. But she would soon realize that her initial fears about John were right. Always trust your instincts, ladies and gentlemen. Here is just a synopsis of the terror that John put Michelle through. So while Michelle's five months pregnant, he places her in a chokehold after she asks him for help around the house, which is insanity. He also threw her seven-year-old son against the wall. He also punched her on her chest, leaving terrible bruises. And at one point, he punched her in the head, knocking her to the ground while she was holding their baby girl in her hands. Michelle stayed silent throughout most of this. But after he assaulted her while she was holding her daughter, Michelle said enough is enough. And she filed for a divorce and she got a restraining order. He was on notice. If he violated that restraining order, he could spend a year in jail. You think John cared? John didn't care one bit. And he violated that restraining order almost on a daily basis. At one point, he even broke into Michelle's house one night while she was sleeping, stood over her bed and terrorized her while telling her, I can snuff you out right now. And then he left. When Michelle called the police and she couldn't produce the restraining order because John had stolen the copy that she had, the police said, well, there's nothing I can do about it. You guys are still married. And they just went on their dandy day and did nothing. After reporting all of these restraining order violations, a grand jury brought to, was brought together to see if John would be indicted. And even with the mountains of evidence that Michelle provided, they said, nope, not enough evidence, and the charges were dropped. It seemed John was invincible in the face of the law. In January of 1987, John followed Michelle to work and he threw a large rock at her car while she was driving, causing her almost to wreck. And she was like, you know what? Enough is enough. Even though the justice system had failed her, she was going to continue to report every single one of his shenanigans. He, After she reported this, though, he spent a whole week in jail. And when he got out, he was very apologetic with Michelle. Instead of being a raging maniac, as he always was, he looked different. And Michelle thought, you know, maybe a week in jail scared him straight. After discussing the case with her lawyer and realizing that he would probably get only time served anyway, Michelle extended an olive branch and she dropped the charges. She thought, finally, he's learned his lesson. Boy, was she wrong, though. On July 10th of 87, the divorce was final and Michelle was finally a free woman, or at least she thought. But John, he was granted unsupervised visits with his daughter because the judge determined, hey, he hasn't done anything to his kid, so supervised visits at this point are uncalled for. Even after the divorce, John still made Michelle's life a living hell. After John followed Michelle to work one day, he pushed her down the stairs. Michelle again said, screw it, I'm reporting it. Before he was arrested, though, he found out that she had reported him and he had one more thing up his sleeve and he was making sure that Michelle would pay for reporting him. One day while he's on his bicycle, he finds Michelle 
He rides up to her. He says, if you're going to put me in jail, there might as well be a pretty good darn reason. He then pummels Michelle to a pulp. He breaks her nose, dislocates her jaw, and he punches her so hard that her eyes are nearly shut for a week from the swelling. This was a public beating in front of neighbors. Michelle survived this pummeling, though, and she was determined to make John pay. However, the way the legal system was set up at this time, he only received probation for this assault. Again, even after this, he still allowed unsupervised visits with his daughter because he was found to be a fit parent. Michelle was able to finally move on from John, though. She leaves Texas and she returns to her home state of Louisiana. And here she becomes a law professor and her focus is criminal law. And she later goes on to educate on family violence. I mean, this woman is an advocate for domestic violence because she lived this. I mean, she survived this crazy maniac. Michelle is such a good example on how to turn lemons into lemonade. I mean, she is really brave. And just a little bit more information about Michelle, which I got from Irene Pence's book. Michelle went on to remarry. She became a member of the Violent Crime and Homicide Task Force, and she was recognized by the WYCA as the Woman of Achievement for her public service regarding her domestic violence campaign. So Michelle was finally able to breathe a sigh of relief from John when he met his soon-to-be second wife. So let's talk about John's second wife. His second wife's name is Mary Jean Pearl. And this woman came from money and her family gave her everything she wanted. She was an only child after all. In October of 1990, as luck would have it, she met John Battaglia. He made her feel like a queen. She was impressed with his credentials. Marine veteran, CPA. She's in awe of him, partly because she hadn't finished high school. Instead, she decided she was going to follow in her mother's footsteps and she went into the antique business. Early on, she was smitten. I mean, these people began to talk about marriage, I mean, almost as soon as they started dating. And, you know, John even disclosed his run-in with the law and even breaking Michelle's nose. But of course, he downplayed the entire thing. He was the victim. He made his ex-wife be a terrible woman who egged him on every chance that she got. Marie Jean was sure things would be different for her. They were married on April 6, 1991, after only dating six months. Mary Jean's parents saved no expense for their baby girl, and they purchased her first marital home. Mary Jean's fairy tale would end as soon as it began, just as it did for Michelle. In fact, on the evening of her wedding day, John basically turned into a different person. I mean, she was like dating Jekyll and Hyde and didn't know. And then the night she married him, he turned into a different person. She didn't know what to do. But before she could do anything, she found herself in the same position as Michelle circa 1985, pregnant. Their first daughter, Faith, was born on January 9th, 1992. In Irene Pence's book, she writes that John's anger towards Marie Jean was partly due to the fact that they lived in her house 
And although he didn't beat Mary Jean like he did Michelle, he instead chose to terrorize her by using abusive language and often criticizing her. Their second daughter, Liberty, was born on January 7, 1995. At this point, I just need to give a, a small backstory. So there's all this information. He's verbally abusive to her practically from the beginning. But there's like a lull in their relationship where it seems, at least from my reading of the book, that he's maybe less aggressive. And I want to give a backstory on that. In 1993, John became a whistleblower. And he outed his company that he was working for for fudging the numbers on a government contract. And there was this huge lawsuit. And John is really excited because he felt the lawsuit was a slam dunk. And he stood to get close to $5 million if the lawsuit was successful. But five years after the lawsuit was initiated on August 8th, 1998, his dream of being rich died when he lost the lawsuit. And now I just want to explain a little bit of what I discovered. So Mary Jean, her worth was about $4 million, and he was standing to win $5 million. So he was excited because he was finally going to have more money than his wife. And so when they lost the lawsuit, it almost seemed like he snapped, right? So in January of 99, and this is going to be seem pretty is insignificant, but during one of his little boy pouty fights, John throws a cookie at Marie Jean. And this is the straw that broke the camel's back. And she says, I am sick. I'm sick and tired of you. Get out of my house. And so he leaves. He rents a 1600 square foot condo in an up and coming neighborhood in Dallas. Because John, of course, is a maniac, Mary Jean is granted a restraining order after she kicks him out of his house and files for divorce which he promptly violates over and over again. So we're going to fast forward. So she kicks him out of the house in January of 99. Fast forward to December of 99. And Mary Jean and the girls, this is their first Christmas without John in the house. And John is scheduled to pick up the girls that morning, but he arrives an hour earlier and he's with his oldest daughter. Mary Jean invites both of them into the house because even though it's a violation of the restraining order, it's Christmas and she doesn't want to be a Grinch by only inviting the daughter in and leaving him outside. And she knows he's just going to be a jerk about it anyway and not let the daughter come in. However, when John comes in, he wastes no time in initiating a physical assault on Marie Jean after he followed her up the stairs. I mean, he pummels her over and over again, punching her in the head, pulling her hair, kicking her. And she's counting the blows over and over and over again. And she's thinking it's never going to end. All while the three daughters are watching in horror. John quickly stops the assault and he leaves the house, leaving behind his oldest daughter. This guy is just a terrible human. The Christmas Day assault case was heard by Judge David Finn in August of 2000 and it resulted in a $2,000 fine and one year in jail. But guess what? That was immediately reduced to two years of probation. Now, I'm wondering, what the heck? For sentencing, don't the judges, aren't they supposed to take into account similar crimes or the likelihood to reoffend? I mean, couldn't they have looked back at the charges that Michelle had filed years earlier? I mean, I know they were dropped, but isn't it like still somehow in your record that this had happened? And for some reason, this judge didn't think anything of it and only gives this guy two years of probation 
for physically assaulting his current wife in front of the three children. I mean, that's insane to me. So two weeks after this court hearing where he's only given two years of probation, Marie Jean is finally granted a divorce. And so in order to get the divorce, she had to agree to pay him $75,000. Can you believe this? She's the one being physically abused, verbally abused, and she has to give him $75,000. But this happens every day in America. This is just the country that we live in. But in accordance with the judge's ruling, in addition to getting the divorce and him getting $75,000, he also gets access to the girls every Wednesday and every other weekend. John is on probation, and as part of his probation, he has to do these monthly drug tests. And in the fall of 2000, he tests positive for marijuana. I mean, right here, this is a cause for him to be immediately arrested and put in jail. I mean, it's a violation of probation. But in typical John fashion, it falls through the cracks. Now, court records reveal that on April 17, 2001, Mary Jean gave $50 to John's oldest daughter as an Easter gift. I mean, she was at the house. She didn't want her to feel left out. John went off the walls about this. He later calls and leaves Mary Jean a message. And the message says, quote, the next time you give my daughter $50, why don't you tell her how you screwed her out of her college fund, you pig? How do you feel, pig? End quote. Marie Jean is fed up and she immediately reports this incident because he's not supposed to contact her. And so now she has this voicemail that he calls her telling her off. The justice system missteps after Mary Jean's report would result in the basis for this case being an episode on this podcast. Irene Pence describes in her book how the police went to obtain an arrest warrant the same day that Mary Jean reports this offense. But a week later, it still hadn't been executed. Mary Jean was pissed, so she personally took the recording to the district attorney's office. And immediately, a probation officer says, oh, we're sorry, we're going to process this to get him arrested. However, the probation officer left town and left the paperwork on his desk. On April 30th, John gets a phone call from his probation officer and the probation officer says, hey, dude, the court wanted a copy of your record and they're going to be looking at you for a possible revocation hearing. And at this point, John made it his mission when he found out about this to convince Mary Jean to not pursue the most recent offense. Finally, on May 1st, the Highland Park Police filed the arrest warrant with the DA two weeks after Mary Jean presented the evidence. Can you imagine it took two weeks for this? So during one of John's, quote, trying to convince Mary Jean to drop the charges stint, he decides that he's going to call his ex-wife, Michelle, to ask for help. He leaves Michelle a message. In this message, it contains lots of ranting and raving and blah, blah, blah. I'm a victim, yada, yada, yada. And then he says, quote, Maybe Mary Jean needs to lose the girls. That would teach her a lesson. So Michelle, do me a favor. In your Christian way, please talk to Mary Jean and get her to drop the charges so I won't go to jail. End quote. On Wednesday, May 2nd, John had a quick conversation with the girls to firm up their dinner plans. And after the call was over, Faith asked her mom, quote, 
why do I have the worst daddy in the world? End quote. Mary Jean said, oh, Faith, Faith, you don't have the worst daddy in the world. And the savvy nine-year-old then retorted, quote, you're right. The worst daddy is the one in University Park who killed the mommy in front of his three children. My daddy is the second worst, end quote. When Faith was talking about this, she was discussing the murder of Mary Richardson by her CPA husband, Patrick Timothy Richardson. But more on that case later. At 6.25, Mary Jean promptly drops the girls off at the publicly agreed upon place. After John picked up the girls, he took them to run an errand to pick something up at the dry cleaners. And as they're walking out of the dry cleaners, he sees that there's like an outdoor store, kind of like an REI. He comments to the girls, hey, let's go over there to see if we can buy some camping equipment for our trip next weekend. And Faith, you know, she's kind of like, Dad, we're probably not going to go camping next weekend. And John is confused, like, why wouldn't we be going camping next weekend? Faith reminds him, you know, because you might be in jail. John then says, oh, 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 you know, that's probably not going to happen, you know. And Faith says, well, mom thinks you're going to get a month in jail. At this point, the rage is building up in John. But John changes the subject. And after they decide where they're going to go for dinner that night, he proposes a pit stop at his house to change into some other clothes. So John and the girls, they go back to his loft and he changes. But John has an idea. Hey, 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 before we leave, I want to get to the bottom of this whole I'm going to be in jail thing. And I, we need to talk to your mom. Faith says, no, dad, you can't call mom. John says, I can't call your mother, but you can John then proceeds to force Faith to call her mother. So Faith picks up the phone, dials her mother, and she calls. But Mary Jean doesn't answer, and she leaves her a voicemail. At this point, though, John is pretty pissed off, and he wants answers. So he calls his ex-mother-in-law and says, Hey, I need to talk to your daughter. Tell her to call us ASAP. So eventually, Mary Jean calls John. And when she calls, John puts the phone on speakerphone, and he tells Faith, Go on, honey tell your mom. At this point, Faith is sobbing, sobbing. Mary Jean can hear Faith sobbing when she asks, quote, mommy, why do you want daddy to go to jail? End quote. At this point, Mary Jean is fed up. She's like, John, stop with this freaking shenanigans. Leave our kids out of our problems. And then Mary Jean hears the most horrific sound that will be edged in her memory for all eternity. She hears Faith scream, No, Daddy, don't. Oh, please, no, Daddy, don't. Don't do it. No, no, no. Then, over the cries of her daughter, Mary Jean hears the riddling off of gunshots. Mary Jean screams, directing her daughters, Run, run, run! Run as fast as you can! And there's a commotion, and then, all of a sudden, silence. Then John returns to the receiver, with one last message for Mary Jean. Quote, Merry Christmas. End quote. Then, dead silence. You see, when Faith was talking to her mom, she heard a click behind her. She turned to see a 38 revolver in her father's hand. The click was the sound of the gun's safety mechanism being turned off. John looked his daughter in the eyes and squeezed the trigger, hitting her twice. Then 
he ran after his six-year-old daughter, Liberty, and he shot her three times. He returned to the phone with his last message to Mary Jean. After the phone went dead, he needed to ensure that Mary Jean would never see her babies again. So he executed his daughters one last time. After the murders, John took a mouthful of tranquilizers and he drove to a local bar. After the call, Mary Jean is terrified. She's terrified. Could this be real? She immediately calls the police before making her way to the loft and the crime scene was secured by 8.32 p.m. And Liberty and Faith were pronounced dead at the scene, but there was no sign of John or his vehicle. After Mary Jean's worst nightmare was confirmed, she mustered all she had in her to protect John's only living daughter. She called Michelle to tell her what happened in an effort that they would protect themselves in the event that John was on his way over there. When Michelle heard the news, this is when she realized that she had unheard voicemails from John. She pressed play. Quote, this is Baba. He then described how he was sending all of his money to his oldest daughter. This is for your college. Put it in an account and invest it. Save it for college, okay? Love you, sweetheart. End quote. Meanwhile, John had met up with an old friend, and in a drug-induced stupor propelled by alcohol and cocaine, he decided it was a great idea to get tattoos. So they walk into a tattoo parlor at closing time, and John somehow charms his way and convinces the tattoo artist that he can't wait until the next day because he's going to be in jail. But John's friend is like, yeah, yeah, he's going to be in jail because of a probation violation. She has no idea that he has just recently mercilessly killed his young daughters. The audacity of this guy. He gets two tattoos, two roses with each daughter's name in the middle of it. So, quote, no one could ever take them away from me, end quote. For four hours, more than 100 police officers, they're out looking for John in his truck. I mean, they're contacting airports. They think this guy is going to flee the country. When a police officer on routine patrol spots John's car only a few blocks from the crime scene, the officer was Senior Corporal Lowell Bryant, a 13-year police veteran. So, of course, he phones it in and he hides until backup arrives. Just before 2 a.m., the police see a man approaching the truck and they determine it's John. And the ensuing scene appears to be straight out of a movie. The police officers pounce saying, John Battaglia, you're under arrest. Show me your hands. John, however, the typical bad boy, he isn't going down without a fight. He reaches into his car trying to get a gun, causing four police officers to jump on him as he fights them all off. I mean, this guy is a maniac. You have to remember, he is like drug induced at this point. He isn't going down without a fight, and it's not until one officer puts him on a chokehold that they're finally able to subdue him. The cops got John pretty good. So for a picture of his puffy face after being arrested, go to the website. Later that day, when John is caught, Marie Jean is finally cleared to go home. When she gets there, she discovers a grisly message from John. After the murders, John called and said, quote, Good night, my little babies. I hope you're resting in a different place. I love you. I wish that you had nothing to do with your mother. She was evil, vicious, stupid. You will be free of her. I love you very dearly. You were very brave girls. Very brave. Liberty, you were oh so brave. I love you so much. 
by, end quote. John's probation violation arrest warrant was signed the day after Faith and Liberty were executed, but it was too little, too late. The justice system had failed those two little girls. Sadly, the deaths of Faith and Liberty were a cautionary tale that domestic violence victims should be taken seriously. This case, of course, infuriated the public. Why would a man with so much history of abuse and anger be allowed to see his children unsupervised? So Representative Toby Goodman took matters into his own hands and publicly said, quote, There's this presumption that a child benefits from maximum contact with both parents. And in a perfect world, yeah, that would be true. However, a recent government study found that children in homes where spouses are abused are 1,500 times more apt to be abused than in homes with no spousal abuse, end quote. Senate Bill 140 was born. It was the Battaglia Visitation Law Amendment to the Custody Rights Bill. Governor Rick Perry signed it, and it became law on September 1st, 2001. After the murders, Mary Jean was constantly asked for interviews, but she always declined until Judge David Finn decided to campaign to become the new district attorney. Remember, David Finn, he was the judge who originally had given him one year in jail and then reduced it to probation, even though there was all of this evidence that, you know, he was a psychopath. Mary Jean could not sit by as the man that let her little girls be with a serial beater and a probation violator campaigned for office. She called a press conference and said, quote, I'm here tonight because I believe that Judge David Finn let my children and me down, end quote. Needless to say, he lost the race. John was charged with capital murder. Remember, we're in Texas here. The jury consisted of seven men and five women. The prosecution laid out the facts of the case, and they described the murders as, quote, the ultimate act of revenge, end quote. And there was so much overwhelming evidence against John that the defense, they didn't even put on a case. They didn't cross-examine many of the prosecution witnesses, and they didn't even put on any evidence. In fact, after the prosecution said the prosecution rests, the defense stood up and said the defense rests. During the prosecution's closing arguments, the prosecutor describes the grisly murders and he commented, quote, obviously he didn't love his girls, end quote, to which John retorted in open court, I did too love them. The jury deliberated for only 19 minutes and they returned a guilty verdict. The sentencing case was riddled with various psychiatric opinions regarding whether John suffered from bipolar mood disorder, depression, and a slew of other things. All the experts agreed he was not insane, and he could appreciate the nature of his crimes when he was committing them. And this is a quote from the book. It says, quote, Dr. Richard Coons, who is both a psychiatrist and a lawyer, double whammy, right? He concluded that John killed his kids as an act of anger and retribution to punish Mary Jean. He believes John had a mild form of bipolar disorder, but that he also had antisocial personality disorder, such that he rationalized and blamed others for his actions. Dr. Coons testified that John told him that all he wanted to do was to get the girls out of trouble so that they wouldn't be drug addicts, strippers, hate their parents, or be prostitutes. 
Dr. Coons believed that John was rationalizing why he killed his two daughters, end quote. At sentencing, the prosecution, they focused on John being a menace to society. They even reminded the jury about that one time ages ago when John pulled a gun on his brother. The defense, on the other hand, they focused on John's alleged mental illness. And they told the jurors, if you guys sentence John to death, you guys are showing no more compassion than John did to his own kids. And he ended with, quote, don't put a man to death who acted out of illness, end quote. The prosecution, they're pissed. They rebutted, reminding the jury that this wasn't a heat of passion type of crime. He made various statements about Mary Jean losing what she loved the most, as well as, you know, the whole ruse about going back to the house and changing. When he makes the original phone call, she doesn't answer. Then he calls his ex-mother-in-law. I mean, he's waiting. He's waiting for her to call because he wants to punish Mary Jean. The jury deliberates for six and a half hours and they return the death penalty. I'm going to read directly from Mary Jean's impact statement, which I found in in Irene Pence's book, because I think that her words are just overwhelmingly powerful. Quote, the only two people in the world that cared for you and trusted you, their father, with their lives. You are one of the most heinous murderers of modern times. Hitler didn't kill his own kids. Dahmer didn't kill his own kids. Faith used to tell me, I've got the worst father in the world. And I'd say, oh, Faith, no, you don't. Well, Faith, you were right. He was the worst father in the world. Liberty hid under the bed, not wanting to go to dinner with you that Wednesday night. But I said, oh, it's going to be fine. I trusted you with their lives. Your cowardly, evil, and selfish nature also took a father from your oldest daughter much less the life she could have shared with her sisters that adored her. I am what's left of the goodness in them. At least I know that I will be reunited with them in heaven forever. Until then, I will try to work to help others escape the domestic violence living hell that you've put us through. For what you have done, my family, my friends, and myself hope you burn in hell forever. End quote. In 2014, John gave an interview to the Dallas Morning News. And I'm going to post a link of this interview in my show notes and website because John is a freaking creep in this interview. He says, quote, I don't feel like I killed them, end quote. He even refers to them as his little best friends. In one of his various appeals, his attorneys wrote that John was, quote, convinced that his trial and conviction were a sham and that his death penalty was all part of a conspiracy involving the KKK, child molesters, and homosexual lawyers, end quote. WTF, man? But the court didn't agree, and basically they said, John, you are a sham. You are faking this mental health illness because you don't want to be executed. And in fact, we have evidence that you have been researching in the prison library capital murder rulings on mental competence. And also, by the way, we have a recorded call where you told your father that what you're doing right now is a chess game to avoid execution. In the Dallas Morning News Deadly Affection series, they interviewed John's surviving daughter, who I am not going to name to protect her privacy. She tells the news that her father was diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, 
characterized by exploitative behavior, an oversized sense of self-importance, and a lack of empathy. So before I continue with John's story, I want to circle back to Faith's statement about her dad being the second worst dad after the man who killed his wife in front of their three kids. And so I wanted to do a little bit more research on that case. And I discovered that in that surrounding area, there were three brutal domestic murders around the same time frame. I think it's like a two or three year time frame. The first occurred on September 19, 1999. Mary Richardson, she was a wealthy woman and she was married to a CPA, Patrick Richardson. They had been married for 13 years. They had three kids together, ranging from ages five through eight. For whatever reason, Patrick envied the fact that his wife was wealthy, but he wasn't generally a violent man. In fact, they said that he had never showed any sign of being violent at all. Mary files for divorce on September 8th, 1999, and she allows Patrick to stay at the house for one more week before he has to move out. On the day that he has to move out, he goes to church with the kids and he comes home. Patrick claims that when he got home, Mary said something that basically caused him to snap. He jumps over the couch. He slaps Mary with a lamp. He wraps the cord around her neck and then he nearly severs her head with a pair of scissors. This all happened while the three kids watched in horror. Because there was no history of violence in the family, I found that this is something labeled catathymic homicide. And according to the 1996 Journal of Aggression and Violent Behavior, catathymic violence is when, quote, an underlying unresolved emotional conflict creates an enormous amount of psychological tension, which is released through a violent act, end quote. And so for this murder, Patrick was sentenced to 60 years The crazy part is a year later, Patrick also pleads guilty for a murder for hire plot after it's discovered that he asked an inmate to set his brother-in-law's house on fire. And so I found this interesting, right? Because we just learned that he's labeled or his murder of his uh, wife was labeled a catathymic homicide, right? Because it's kind of like a sleeping giant and then he releases his anger through this violent act. But here, I mean, a year later, he's trying to hire someone to kill his brother-in-law. So it's almost like this guy just a downward spiral and he totally snapped. And so for this crime, the murder for hire, he receives an additional five years. And according to the Texas Tribune, Patrick's projected release date is April 19th, 2065. So after Mary Richardson was murdered, then in this was in 99, then Faith and Liberty were murdered in May of 2001. But grief would strike in this same area again five months later when Stephen Cummings Loss went to his ex-wife's house to pick up his two sons. He murdered his ex-wife, their seven-year-old son, and then injured their 14-year-old son. Stephen then turned the gun on himself. So these three stories are very tragic and they all happened around the same area. So this poor town, I guess, uh, was reeling from just a deadly time for, you know, family murderers. 
So where is John Battaglia now? Well, at the age of 62, on February 1st, 2018, he was executed. On the day of his execution, this guy shows no regret, no mercy. I mean, he doesn't even offer any words of encouragement to the woman he hurt the most, Mary Jean. In fact, he was an arrogant piece of shenanigans. As reported by the Dallas Morning News, while strapped to his gurney, he says, oh, how many people are there? And then he kind of like lifts his head and looks and says, oh, that's a lot of people. You know, I mean, he's just, he's even cocky enough that he says hi to Mary Jean. Like, dude, I'm not here to see you. I'm here to see your ass be executed. Shut up. He was pronounced dead 22 minutes after the lethal injection was given. All right. That was a heavy, heavy case. As a mother of two young children, reading that case, researching that case, everything just put, it was like so heavy and it just weighed on me every single time I had to look it up. And and it's just a really devastating case. And it is so sad. The justice system really failed in that case and probably so many others out there. And so if you want more detailed retelling of that story, please pick up Irene Pence's book, No Daddy Don't. It really goes into a lot of details. It talks about just all the missteps that the criminal justice system made, you know? Domestic violence is real and it can affect anyone, rich, poor, middle class. It doesn't matter. If you or anyone you know is suffering from domestic violence, needs help, encouragement, or support, please contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline and they can be reached at 1-800-799-7233. You do not need to suffer in silence. Please get help before it is too late. Okay, I think it's time for everyone to go on YouTube and look up funny cat videos because this one was really heavy. So I know that the death penalty is a hot button topic, but what do you guys think? What do you guys think of John's ultimate sentence and the the finality of the case? I I really want to hear from you guys. All right. So, of course, you guys know how to reach me. You guys can email me at militarymurderpodcast at gmail.com. If you like this show, not necessarily this story because it's really sad, I really would appreciate a five-star rating. So don't forget to leave a review and a rating and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so that you never miss a show. I've already talked about my sources. They can be found on my website at www.militarymurderpodcast.com. And you can also go there to suggest a case. Until next time, remember, don't ever let someone's credentials cloud your judgment. Military veteran, PhD, church pastor, whatever. Everyone wears different masks. You never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. Let's work another podcast.